BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and welcome to our Reporters Roundtable on this Friday, May 21. It's been a busy week, especially here on Capitol Hill with most activities centered around the insurrection of January 6. At first, it appeared that leaders of both parties were interested in creating a bipartisan commission to get to the bottom of things. Then suddenly, at the last minute, both Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell, bowing to Donald Trump, came out against it. McCarthy couldn't stop it in the House. 35 Republicans broke with him and voted with Democrats to create the commission, but its fate is certainly uncertain in the Senate. At the same time, more and more Republicans are dismissing the insurrection as nothing but a regular, normal tourist visit. On other fronts, Donald Trump's legal woes increased this week with news that the New York Attorney General has launched a criminal investigation of his finances and after 11 days of rockets and missiles back and forth, Israel and Hamas have agreed to a ceasefire brokered in part by the Biden administration. Oh, so much to talk about, so little time. So let's get right to today's panel. Sabrina Siddiqui, White House reporter for a Wall Street Journal. Hello, Sabrina. Good morning. Melanie Mason joining us from Los Angeles National Political Correspondent for the LA Times. Hi, Melanie. Hi there. And back here in Washington, Scott Wong, senior reporter for The Hill. Hello, Scott. Hey, Bill. Well, let's start at the White House. Uh, Sabrina, the president, coming forth before the American people, 6 p.m. Eastern last night, announcing uh, that uh, both sides had agreed to this ceasefire. Here is the president. My conversation with President Netanyahu, I commended him for the decision to bring the current hostilities to a close within less than 11 days. I also emphasize what I've said throughout this conflict. The United States fully supports Israel's right to defend itself against indiscriminate rocket attacks from Hamas and other Gaza-based terrorist groups that have taken the lives of innocent civilians in Israel. I believe the Palestinians and Israelis equally deserve to live safely and securely and to enjoy equal measures of freedom, prosperity, and democracy. So, Sabrina, the first foreign policy crisis of the new administration, how did they handle it? Well, <laughs> I think it's been a real challenge for this administration because there was an early effort to uh, pivot the United States away from the Middle East and toward Asia. Much of the foreign policy priorities of this administration, which is only four months in, uh, have been centered around uh, reining in the influence of Beijing uh, in terms of economic and strategic competition. And next thing you know, yep. uh, you have this escalation in the Middle East, effectively pulling Biden back into the longstanding 
issue of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And he, you know, he came in with a pretty typical um, stance of supporting a two-state solution, even though that goal has been less and less obtainable over the course of the last several years. So, you know, I think what, what the administration really touted was this quiet and relentless diplomacy. They really didn't want to say anything in public. They were very reluctant also to criticize the Israeli government, even as casual, civilian casualties were mounting in Gaza as a result of Israeli airstrikes. Um, and, and what that meant was there were more forceful calls throughout this 11-day conflict for Biden to take a tougher stance, uh, some Democrats in Congress wanting to revisit the U.S.-Israel alliance altogether, specifically just how much aid the United States provides to Israel. But really, the administration did not uh, make this a, a big public uh, issue, and instead was working the phones behind the scenes, trying to de-escalate, and perhaps now has been criticized for questions we can't definitively answer, which are, if they had taken a more public stance sooner, would there have been more pressure on Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu to scale down uh, the military offensive in Gaza? Would there have perhaps been less loss of civilian life? Uh, the administration is touting it as, as a success. Uh, but I do think there's there's going to be some questions about the administration's handling of this crisis more broadly, especially as the world was watching and the world was pressing the United States to take a more active role, um, especially amid the humanitarian concerns in Gaza. And, and Scott, for the first time that I recall, um, there was some unrest um, on the part of Democrats in Congress. Uh, that uh, the Biden administration was tilting too far toward Israel. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's right, Bill. Um, you know, this is not the same Democratic Party from five or even ten years ago. It's it's much more progressive. It's much more sympathetic to the Palestinians. Um, we saw we saw a number of examples of that on Capitol Hill this week. Um, you know, just look at who sits in the uh, House Foreign Affairs chairman slot. You know, for a number of years, it had been Elliot Engel, a prominent Jewish mm -hmm. American and really strong uh, ally to Israel. Well, this year, after Engel was ousted in, in a primary by a progressive, this year he was replaced by Greg Meeks as Foreign Affairs chairman. And just this week, Meeks had threatened to lead an, an effort on Capitol Hill to delay that huge arms sales to Israel uh, in, in the midst of the fighting in the Middle East. Um, you know, another example is we saw that picture on the, on the front pages of The Washington Post and other newspapers of, of Biden uh, huddling on a tarmac with Rashida Tlaib. She's the first Palestinian American in Congress. She is uh, a progressive, one member of the squad, along with AOC. And she spent, uh, you know, she had an eight-minute conversation on the tarmac with President Biden um, during his visit to Dearborn, Michigan this week. Uh, and, you know, we can imagine what they were talking about. I'm sure she was pressuring <laughs> right. Biden to, uh, you know, to, to be more forceful in calling for a ceasefire, to put more pressure on mm -hmm. Israel to back off, uh, you know, their, their military airstrikes. And, uh, you know, shortly thereafter, Biden did put out stronger statements. And so Biden was certainly feeling pressure, not only from the global community, but, but from from uh, his allies in Congress, uh, a number of, of the Democrats who have 
move to more progressive positions uh, in in the House, and uh, and certainly we saw you know we saw that with right. his words uh, this week before the ceasefire mm-hmm. was called. Yeah, and I'm sure he relayed those uh, uh, that pressure of those concerns to. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu in his, in his conversations. Melanie, what struck me about the uh, the president's remarks last night, and we just heard it there at, at the tail end, where he made a point of saying that he believes that Palestinians and Israelis um, equally deserve to live safely in security and have their rights respected. I'm paraphrasing there uh, just a little bit. Um, I, I, I thought that was... Um, a, a pretty important statement on the part of the president. I think you're right. And I think it shows that as intractable as I think the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has felt and the contours have felt like they've been static for so long, I think that that what we've seen in both how President Biden handled this, congressional Democrats, is that there's, there's a lot of fluidity about both the domestic politics here in the United States and the domestic politics, of course, in Israel, which I think um, has really shown how what has been a real kind of almost lockstep alliance um, is now starting to change. And, and this isn't something that just happened in the last uh, five or six months since, since, since Biden's taken office, of course. I mean, we've seen over the course uh, of the last two presidencies that there has been uh, a little bit more nuance injected into the to the relationship um, the United States has with with partners in this region. And so as you've seen uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu really uh, sort of sidle up more and more to Republicans, first in Congress and then uh, former President Trump's administration, I think that that has given Democrats maybe a little bit more leeway to talk a little bit more about both sides in this conflict. And mm-hmm. I think that you are seeing now a little bit more distance than you would have otherwise seen. And I think it just goes to show that as much as it seems sometimes like this conflict remains in place and doesn't change, there's actually a lot of current sort of churning underneath um, and could really affect this conversation going forward. Right. Okay. So let's come back home here, Scott, with the uh, measure this week uh, to create this January 6th commission Uh, to look into the insurrection of January 6th and um, get to the bottom of it, tell the American people the truth about what happened and how we might uh, protect the Capitol from something like this and the members who work there from something and staff and reporters (laughs) from something like this ever happening again. Originally, Kevin McCarthy and uh, Mitch McConnell uh, seemed to be for it, and then suddenly they turned against it. What happened? Well, that's right. I mean, Kevin McCarthy was one of the first um, leaders in Congress to call for a bipartisan commission. And, and many of his allies, you know, including Rodney Davis, were putting out bills calling for an independent uh, commission. What changed, I think, was, number one, um, they quickly realized over the last few months that Donald Trump, uh, even though he is sequestered away at Mar-a-Lago and, and without his uh, access to Twitter— he is still a force in the Republican Party. He is the single most important force right now in the Republican Party. He is threatening um, to, to back primary challengers to people who he views as disloyal. Um, McCarthy knows that he will need Trump and, and his and Trump's supporters support in the upcoming midterms ele- midterm elections if he's ever to become Speaker of the House and, and for them to take back the majority. And so uh, McCarthy, it appears, and McConnell have made a calculation. Uh, you know, they're they're going to, uh, you know, they're embracing Trump. And so, with Trump so opposed to this 
uh, January 6th commission that certainly would be taking a hard look at the former president's involvement in, uh, you know, in inciting the events of that day. Um, you know, the president, the former president has called the commission a democratic trap in a recent yeah. statement. And so I think this is this is mostly about politics and mostly about politics in 2022. Does it have any chance at all in the Senate, Scott? Uh, it's still up in the air, although I think most reporters and most people you talk to in the Capitol think it's not going anywhere because uh, some of the seven member Republican senators who voted to impeach President Trump uh, have come out against the January 6th commission as it is currently written. That's not to say that things couldn't be tweaked here and there and, and maybe build some support. But right mm -hmm. now, it's looking unlikely. Senator Schumer says he's he's planning to bring uh, bring a vote on that House passed bill, um, you know, in, in the coming next next couple of weeks or so. But um, right now, I think it's still up in the air. I think it was interesting to see the 35 Republican yeah. defectors uh, in the House uh, who, who bucked McCarthy, who bucked President Trump and said, you know, we're, help, you know, we're going ahead with this and we're going to join the Democrats in supporting the January 6th commission. That I thought yeah. was a significant number. Well, yeah, uh, Supreme, I was going to just ask you about that. The 35 Republican defectors, uh, does that indicate that maybe the influence of Donald Trump on the party is starting to melt a little bit? Well, it's. I think that there certainly is a faction of Republicans, and this is the internal battle we've seen playing Liz, out since Liz the election. Yeah. There's a faction of Republicans who um, I think would like to look beyond Donald Trump, um, they, who do not want this entire party to be framed around this cult of personality. And there are also those Republicans who do feel that the insurrection on January 6th warrants further investigation, and specifically uh, in terms of the security failures and how much the administration knew and when they knew it, why they failed to adequately prepare. Um, you, know, you have seen some Republicans say, why were only a handful of Capitol Police put in harm's way uh, without uh, sufficient support from federal law enforcement. Um, why did it take so long for the administration yeah, to deploy no. uh, backup when it was clear, clearly uh, necessary for there to be immediate assistance at the Capitol as the um, insurrection unfolded and, and as the violence ensued? So, you know, I think I wouldn't have go so far, though, to say that there is some huge, uh, you know, coalition of Republicans mm -hmm. who are not, you know, who, who are anti-Trump in, in, a, in a meaningful way, you know, in the sense that there was also, you know, a, a few dozen Republicans who were, you know, either never Trump or distanced themselves from Trump throughout the course of his presidency. May, it is true, though, like Scott said, they were not expecting this many defections. And so now the question is, uh, what does it mean for Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell um, as this moves toward the Senate. Right. So, uh, Melanie, we are so used to members of Congress being uh, polite and on the floor and kind of holding their tongue, and we, and we don't necessarily hear, um, you know, 
bursts of passion. But we heard we heard one this week from Congressman Tim Ryan uh, when so many Republicans voted against with McCarthy against the commission, uh, and Congressman Tim Ryan let loose. Here he is. I want to thank the gentleman from New York and the other Republicans who are supporting this and thank them for their bipartisanship to the other 90 percent of our friends on the other side of the aisle. Holy cow. Incoherence. No idea what you're talking about. Ben Benghazi, you guys chased the former secretary of state all over the country, spent millions of dollars. We have people scaling the Capitol, hitting the Capitol police with lead pipes across the head, and we can't get bipartisanship. What else has to happen in this country? Cops. This is a slap in the face to every rank and file cop in the United States. If we're going to take on China, if we're going to rebuild the country, if we're going to reverse climate change, we need two political parties in this country that are both living in reality, and you ain't one of them. <laughs> so how does this play across the outside the beltway, Melody, or the national political reporter? Are the, the American people care about this, want to know what happened and why? Well, well first of all, I, I think that, that uh, to the point that uh, Congressman Ryan's uh, comments were, were unusual, I mean, I, I think we sometimes, we're so used to sort of because the polarization is so baked in now that you would, you know, have... House Republicans and House Democrats on different sides of things. But his comments kind of just remind you, like, this was this moment where on January 6th, on the days after, there did seem to be a bipartisan recognition that what happened was so deeply, deeply jarring and deeply threatening to this country that for a minute it felt like this shouldn't have been a bipartisan thing. And so I think that his sort of incredulity that you're hearing in his voice kind of takes us back to that point in time where, I mean, we did have folks like Senator Lindsey Graham on the night of January 6th kind of have that pretty impassioned speech where he just quoted, was like, I'm out. Like, I don't want to have anything to do with this anymore. And then, of course, he goes back to defending former President Trump so closely. I think in terms of, you know, how does this play outside the beltway? um, You know, right now, I don't know if there's necessarily calls pouring into all of these members' offices about this issue. Um, You know, folks have a lot going on. The economy is reopening, vaccines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But we have not seen that yet been turned into a political issue. And I think that you can see in House districts or in Senate races across the country, the commercial rights itself of the side by side, if members said things in the immediate aftermath um, of that insurrection in January, and then some of the revisionist history that we're seeing, I think some of the most mm-hmm. egregious things saying that these were tourists, um, that this was not a, an insurrection, but a peaceful gathering. I mean, once you see that sort of cognitive, cognitive dissonance um, you know, side by side, that's a pretty good campaign ad. And so while I think that right now there's a calculus on the Republican side that any political blowback from pursuing this commission uh, will be worse than um, than not, we haven't seen the we haven't seen the political attacks of blocking this thing or being barriers to this come through. Uh, and the last thing that I'll point out is that um, I understand that there may not be much appetite on the Republican side for a commission that has sort of the sheen of bipartisanship to be looking into this. But it's not like there is going to be information that will stop coming out entirely about what happened on January 6th. There remains federal prosecutions of the people who siege the Capitol. You know, the press continues to look into this. There's, you know, uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi might be able to pursue uh, her own means of investigation, even if it doesn't Mm -hmm. have a bipartisan sort of uh, brand to it. And so it's not like they could put an end to this conversation. And so I do think if you're thinking about political ramifications later on, um, this gives Democrats the ability to continue to 
to delve into this issue and every time that happens say, and by the way, Republicans didn't want to get answers on this. And so it gives them a, a longer standing political tool to use against uh, House members and senators uh, next year. Right. And, and quickly to that point, um, the, the same day that uh, that so many Republicans voted against creation of the commission, the FBI released new videos and new photos of the insurrection, identifying some of the people who were pummeling police officers. Uh, and there was a letter released by some 50 uh, members of the Capitol Police uh, criticizing Republicans for not taking it more seriously and not creating the commission. So the timing, I think, was a little awkward for those uh, Republicans. But Scott, I want to come back to you uh, on something that uh, Melanie just pointed out, and that is this uh, parallel uh, with the effort to, to kill this commission is the effort to recast what happened on January 6th and to downplay it as anything unusual at all. Uh, we heard that from uh, Congressman uh, Andrew Clyde uh, from uh, Georgia. And then we also heard it this week from Senator Ron Johnson, Wisconsin. Here he is. Calling it an insurrection, uh, it wasn't. I've been back in Wisconsin. I've talked to people that were there. You know, by and large, it was, it was all it was peaceful protests. Peaceful protests. Scott, is that what you saw? I was in the building that day, as you know, Bill. Uh, it was definitely not peaceful. We... Uh, we we felt very threatened, obviously. Uh, you know, I spoke to Republican members of Congress this week, in fact, uh, just sort of going over where they were that day. And one Republican member told me that uh, he is absolutely certain that if uh, lawmakers had been found by these rioters, there would be dead congressmen or dead senators uh, in the building. Um, this lawmaker said, he went back to his office after that day and just simply weeped, um, you know, weep for the country, weep for what happened uh, in the Capitol that day. So while there are uh, a handful of these very, very loyal uh, Trump supporters like Clyde and, and Ron Johnson saying that, uh, you know, they, they were these were simply tourists, that this was a peaceful protest, um, you know, behind the scenes, Republicans knew what happened. Uh, you know, many of them were cowering in fear in their offices. Uh, right. Several several prominent members, uh, you know, who who we would know today, uh, were in their offices as as windows were being shattered and and as rioters were banging, trying to bang down the doors. And so, um, you know, while they be may be saying one thing, um, you know, they certainly know the reality of that day. But do you care to identify that member you spoke to? No, I, okay, okay. It's a member I speak to every day, and and uh, I, I, I'm not going to disclose it. Well, well, that's 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 why I just have to ask, um, uh, Sabrina. Before we take a break, there was one other measure that did pass the House and the Senate, uh, even though 62 Republican members of Congress voted against it, and that is the anti-Asian hate crimes bill, which was signed into law by President Biden after he too uh, became pretty passionate in talking about it, here's the president. Every time we're silent, every time we let hate flourish, we make a lie of who we are as a nation. I mean it literally. We cannot let the very foundation of this country continue to be eaten away like it has been in other moments in our history and happening again. Again, uh, Supreme, we've seen increasing amounts of 
violence directed against Asian Americans across the country. Uh, and this bill steps in to help local police departments deal with that. Um, and 62 House Republicans voted against it. I mean, why? Uh, that's a great question. Some of them brought up uh, free speech issues. Some of them said there were already hate crime laws on the books. Uh, you know, I, I don't even want to give too much credence to, you know, the rationale uh, for not give, supporting a bill that was designed to crack down on hate crimes uh, against the Asian American community, which has been a, an epidemic for, uh, since uh, the coronavirus yeah. pandemic began. Um, you talked about the alarming rise in violence against Asian American communities, and uh, there have been more than 6,600 hate incidents against mm. the API community that have been reported since the pandemic began. And their the expectation is that there are likely even more because many go unreported. And so this legislation was seen as critical, um, and there were a lot of groups rallying for it. Um, you know, what it does is it directs the Justice Department to uh, designate a point person who would assist uh, uh, with an expedited review of COVID-19-related hate crimes and also provide guidance, uh, as you said, for state and local law enforcement agencies to establish online reporting of hate crimes and to do so in multiple languages because language access and language barriers have also been an issue in terms of the reporting of hate crimes. Um, and to expand uh, you know, what they're referring to as linguistically appropriate public education campaigns and uh, create best practices to curb racially discriminatory language um, when it comes to describing the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So this is certainly, um, I think, a bill that did not, you know, did not uh, pass with a great degree of controversy. And, you know, there were these Republicans who voted against it. In the Senate, only one lone Republican, Senator Josh Hawley, voted against it. But by and large, this is a bill that has had overwhelming support mm -hmm. and it has now been signed into law at what was the first major event that President Biden Yes. The White House also since the lifting of certain coronavirus restrictions. And so he right. was able to host, you know, Asian American members of Congress as well as uh, leadership, uh, Democratic mm -hmm. leadership in a really the first real, uh, I think, signing ceremony of sorts um, that was not, you know, out an outdoor mass gathering. OK, uh, panelists, let's take a quick break here and come back. Uh, Donald Trump got some not some not good news uh, this week on the legal front. We'll get into that and a whole lot more uh, affecting the media questions about the media. When we come back with our panelists today on today's roundtable. And today's podcast, today's roundtable is brought to you by the three great labor unions who are sponsors of the Bill Press Pod, the Laborers, the Teamsters, and the UFCW. We thank them, but I want to take uh, a, a advantage of this occasion uh, to celebrate the reopening of the Smithsonian National Zoo today, now that COVID restrictions have been lifted, which means this is your first chance to see our brand new Grand Panda Cub, actually, uh, who was born last year during the pandemic, um, but been under wraps ever since. If you can't make it to Washington today, you can still see Mei Zhang, the mother, and the cub. I hope we get a close to Zhao Qi 
G, I believe, on the Panda Cam. So go to the Panda Cam today. It's a big day for the National Zoo for all Americans. Take advantage of that uh, happy reopening of the National Zoo. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back now with uh, today's roundtable. Sabrina Siddiqui joining us from the Wall Street Journal, Melanie Mason, the LA Times, and Scott Wong from The Hill. Melanie, uh, Donald Trump moving from Mar-a-Lago to Bedminster, New Jersey, and then getting the news that the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, has uh, upped her investigation of the Trump operation from a civil investigation to a criminal investigation on top of a criminal investigation already underway for the last three years by the Manhattan uh, District Attorney, Cyrus Vance Jr. Uh, Not the kind of news that Donald Trump was um, waiting for when he moved to New Jersey, huh? No, and, and he made that perfectly clear with the, the blog post uh, that he put out after after the news that he was none too clear about it. I think we could anticipate in another era where he still had Twitter access um, that this would have been quite a tweet storm. Um, and instead, we all got it in our, our inboxes um, via statement instead. Um, but yes, I think I think that there was always this conversation hypothetically, you know, as Trump was was preparing to leave office of, you know, is there going to be sort of consequences after he leaves office, legal consequences uh, to some of these um, potential crimes that are being investigated. Um, and I think that this just makes that conversation so much more real. I mean, the, I think that when we hypothetically think about a former president um, facing prosecution, it's very different than if you're actually looking at now potentially two criminal investigations that are moving forward. Um, and the fact that, that the attorney general of New York went so, said so publicly, I mean, I think that that is really an indication, and my understanding is a fairly unusual indication uh, in the middle of this process, that, that the evidence that she is gathering may fit that higher burden, burden of proof for a criminal, uh, criminal case as opposed to a civil case. Um, and I think that it signals that, that this reality um, is nearing this idea that we might be seeing a former president really sort of having to face potential legal consequences. And, and that would be unprecedented. I don't think that we have fully wrapped our minds around what that would do um, to sort of the political discourse in this country if that 
actually comes to pass. Uh, and Scott, plus the president is also under investigation, as we know, in the state of Georgia for allegedly interfering with election officials. Yeah, I haven't uh, I haven't reviewed that case in in a while, Bill. But um, you know, he he this would be for for meddling in uh, in the Georgia election for putting pressure mm -hmm. on the Georgia Secretary of State. Uh, you know, as as uh, votes were being counted. Um, one thing that I'm I'm watching, and we spoke a little bit about this earlier, is Trump's grip on his party, which right now remains <laughs> right. strong. But, you know, if if indictments start coming down in the Trump organization, if Trump himself uh, becomes the, the main target of one of these investigations in New York, um, I, I will be interested to see whether or not he retains that strong grip on the party, or if we continue to see more and more Republicans uh, defect uh, you know, defect from Trump and sort of go their own way as as they seek seek reelection in uh, in their House and Senate seats. Uh, and Sabrina, I read um, Kim Wheely, I believe you pronounce her name W E H L E, uh, in the Bulwark this week said that um, we we could be facing a former president uh, who has criminal charges filed against him and maybe even prison time. No immunity once you're no longer in the White House, right? It's extraordinary. And I think that, um, you know, his legal troubles are mounting. And this is something that, of course, had clouded much of his presidency. And, you know, we, we've talked about numerous cases. Uh, the one that, of course, uh, is at the center of the uh, investigation out of New York uh, being uh, relating, I should say, to bank and insurance fraud, as well as the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. Um, and then there's, of course, uh, the matter you raised in Georgia, but there are just any, a number of other inquiries into the Trump organization and the very empire uh, that through which he made his name. So, you know, it's not just also Donald Trump himself. Yeah. There are also legal implications uh, for his son, Don Jr., and other uh, close associates. We've already known about the legal troubles and investigations into Rudy Giuliani, um, his attorney. And, and, then, and I think that it's what's just really astounding is, you know, we've spent years now, Bill, on this show and others talking about all of these different investigations and, mm -hmm. you know, the different threads and trying to connect the dots and the way it all comes together. And, you know, now it does look like um, it's not just a hypothetical anymore. There, This is now, as, as you know, a, a criminal case. And the big question now will be, um, you know, what comes of it? Are there charges brought against the former president? Um, and what the reaction to that would be here in Washington, because it would certainly be unprecedented, um, and it would it would simply be extraordinary. Right. And as Scott points out, could very well have an impact on his support among, among uh, Republicans, which for now is pretty much a lockstep. By the way, uh, just a little plug, uh, the next edition of the Bill Press Podcast uh, next Tuesday will have a full interview with David Farenholt from The Washington Post on 
Donald Trump's legal woes. Um, before we get to your favorite stories of the week, I want to mention just three media stories and get uh, each of you maybe for a quick comment um, that hit this week. Uh, let's start with Chicago, where the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, up uh, celebrating her second anniversary on the job, announced that interviews for her second anniversary, she will only entertain inter requests for interviews from reporters of color, obviously making a point that she doesn't think there's enough diversity in the Chicago press corps. Um, what do you think, Scott? Is this good or bad? <laughs> you put me <laughs> on the spot here. I mean, I, I think two yeah, things... Yeah, I think two things can be can be true. One, yes, there are major diversity uh, problems in the media. We see it uh, on Capitol Hill. Uh, we see it in in newspapers across the country. And so she is she's raising an important issue uh, that that has been uh, going on for decades. I mean, you know, we have these um, minority journalists. Uh, groups like the one Sabrina and I belong to, AAJA, for a reason, because diversity has been a major problem in our industry. Um, you know, uh, she's coming under enormous scrutiny because of, of the way she's doing it, which is not to, mm -hmm. to only grant interviews to reporters of color. And, um, you know, she, she's raising the issue. She's, she's gotten some headlines. This, this issue is getting attention, but uh, it does raise some concerns about, uh, you know, First Amendment issues and, and whether all reporters should have access to a public figure like the mayor of Chicago. Uh, yeah, and it is only for one day and one occasion so far, as we, as we know. Um, anybody else want to comment on that? Otherwise, I'll move on to issue number two. <laughs> all right, Sabrina. Chris Cuomo apologized last night on CNN for uh, admittedly uh, advising his brother, Andrew Cuomo, on how to deal with uh, sexual um, abuse or uh, assault, um, let's say, the allegations. allegations. Sexual, uh, the allegations against him. Um, don't you think Chris Cuomo maybe should have known better? Well, um I, or was I, so, this okay? Was it okay? So I I will say I saw the apology and the way that Chris Cuomo framed it was that he should have he said he should have known better and um, he was very unequivocal about the fact that family comes first and how it's been a very difficult position to be in because this is ultimately his brother. But what he did say is that he should not have been on phone calls advising his brother alongside his brother's staff and other political aides. Um, and mm -hmm. he apologized to CNN and to the, you know, people he worked with for, you know, undermining any notions of uh, professionalism there. I think, look, I, and I think if you take a step back, I mean, I know people have a lot of views more broadly about uh, this particular case. Uh, you know, I don't think that there's any expectation here that, Chris Cuomo does not speak to his brother and that they don't have private conversations where he probably gives him advice. I think the clear line was to be on political calls, strategy right. calls, yeah. um, because he is a journalist. Uh, CNN has obviously not um, had Chris Cuomo cover the allegations against uh, his brother. That's the choice that they've been open about. Some have said that they did you know, have him cover 
the coronavirus briefings that his brother did uh, earlier in the pandemic because it was sort of lighthearted TV. And, and mm-hmm. so there, there are some who say, you know, if he was able to cover that, then he can be able to cover these uh, tougher allegations against his brother. But I think more importantly, this was his apology. And so I think the, you know, the question is, is it enough for people, for those who felt uh, that, you know, this was inappropriate? And, you know, does it remain a story or does everyone move on? Yeah. And CNN says, OK, apologies done. That's it. He will not be disciplined. We are moving on. Uh, so to you, Melanie, uh, we're staying in the CNN family, I guess. Other news on another CNN reporter, uh, the uh, longtime uh, Defense Department reporter Barbara Starr, who's an incredibly good reporter, uh, just revealed that the Trump administration got the Justice Department. So Bill Barr uh, went out and secured the private records of Barbara, Bar- uh, Barbara Starr's emails and phone calls as part of an effort to find out who was leaking stuff out of the, the, the Defense Department. Uh, what does this tell us about um, uh, the risk that journalists face, I guess, in general and about the Trump administration and Bill Barr in particular? Well, I mean, I think it's noteworthy that this news came not long after there were revelations that the uh, Trump Justice Department had also tried to get records of Washington Post reporters. So I think that yep. either there's a, this sense of a pattern building, which, of course, then um, I think gives a sense that there was this, you know, sort of hostility and line crossing, quite frankly, uh, when it came to the Trump administration and its relationship with the press. Now, I think it's very important to note that this was not unique to the Trump administration in the sense that there was some uh, pretty serious allegations uh, during the Obama administration about them seeking records. I believe it was about Associated Press reporters as well as at the time a Fox News reporter. So uh, this ain't just a Trump administration issue, (laughs) but I do think that it really clarifies um, the the relationship that the press and the government should have. Um, And one, I think one central tenet is um, don't spy on the press. Um, I think that that is um, a you would think a non-controversial statement um, that I, as a journalist, uh, would would make. Um, and so, you know, I'm interested to see if there's more revelations, if there's more of a drip, drip, drip. Um, but I do think that as journalists um, in a professional capacity talk about, you know, where those lines should be and why it is inappropriate uh, for the government to be, you know, seeking these kinds of records, trying to ferret out sources. It is. I think it is important for us to note that it's. You can point the finger at the Trump administration, but you will also have to contextualize and note that there are Democratic administrations that did that too. And if it's unacceptable for Trump, it's unacceptable for the Democrats as well. Absolutely, don't spy on us, right? <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, excellent look at the news of the week, friends. Um, but we won't let you go without your favorite story of the week. Something that caught your attention for whatever reason, uh, made you stop and think about it. Start us off, Scott. What do you think? <laughs> Normally, I, I tell a, a serious story, so I'm going to tell a lighthearted one today. All right. Um, cicadas are all the rage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. You, saw, I, you, you might have seen, I posted a video of a cicada crawling around uh, on the outside <laughs> of the Capitol building yesterday. Oh they, my. These cicadas are, are really the only tourists that are allowed in the Capitol and around <laughs> the Capitol, uh, you know, in, in recent weeks. Um, there, there, a colleague turned me on to a, in, a new app on my iPhone. It's called Cicada Safari. 
and it allows, uh, I, I've given it to my kids. They go around the neighborhood. They take a bunch of pictures of the cicadas that are crawling around the trees or, uh, you know, shells that are on the, on the ground and, uh, they upload it to this app and it basically it's a competition and, and it's like a national competition. There's like a leaderboard. And so you could view, uh, oh. everyone's pictures of cicadas, you know, not for the faint of heart, but, um, oh. you know, right now they haven't cracked into the top 500, but they're working on it. And, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's educational for the kids and, uh, I'm having some fun with it as well. Cicada Safari. I'll check it out. I was taking photos and, and sending out photos of cicadas yesterday in Lincoln park. <laughs> so they are, they are, uh, they are everywhere. Uh, Melanie, what caught your attention? Uh, well, first, just on the cicada note, I do have to say that uh, I was a freshman in college at Georgetown the last time that it was cicada season. So it's uh -huh. extremely rude of cicadas to remind me of the uh, passage of time uh, and how long ago <laughs> that was. Um, but, but my story this week uh, is uh, about flaming Hot Cheetos, um, which was by far the biggest news story out of my newspaper, the Los Angeles Times this week. Uh, our business reporter, Sam Dean, um, did a really thorough investigation of what has had been a really incredible and inspiring story of Richard Montanez, who is a um, one-time uh, janitor who said that he invented the product Flaming Hot Cheetos um, and sort of rode that all the way to the, to, to the executive suites. He became a motivational speaker. He has written books. There is a movie in the works about his story. Um, and I think he is really seen as, a, um, as an inspirational figure, particularly within the Latino community. Um, but Sam's reporting found some serious holes in that story. Um, and I think that when I first saw that story, it, it, in some ways I, I was I, I laughed because it was like there's a lot of very intense feelings uh, about flaming hot Cheetos um, that I saw on the internet this week. Uh, but I also think that there it actually spoke to something um, a little bit more serious and a little bit more um, tells us a little bit more about why these stories mean so much to us. I think a lot of people. We're, we're truly saddened that there might be questions about this story because it was so inspirational. Um, and so we've seen a lot of back and forth um, and about, you know, whether his claims are true, the Montanez says still is sticking with his story. Uh, but I'd really recommend that if people are interested in this investigation, which is just great sort of shoe leather uh, journalism by Sam Dean, check it out. And then also my colleague Gustavo Ariano wrote a fantastic column about why people get, are so spun up about the story. And it talks about identity, talks about culture appropriation. Uh, and it's also Gustavo is a, is a really funny writer. So he does it in a way that made me laugh out loud several times. So that was that was the big controversy in our neck of the woods this week was about Flaming Hot where, Cheetos. Where do you get Flaming Hot Cheetos? Where don't you get Flaming Hot Cheetos? <laughs> a 7-Eleven near, near you? That was, I, I have to say that that was a, it was, it was more of a sort of a, a college huh. study snack than anything else. So I don't know, maybe, maybe they're harder to find now, but when, when I was a fan of uh, Flaming Hot Cheetos, I, I didn't have, not have a problem right. finding them in stores. I'll check it out. Okay. Sabrina, your, your dog story of the week, no? <laughs> it is of course a dog story. Although I was very tempted to talk about Shao Chiji. I'm very excited oh. to go see the baby panda Shao Chiji. At uh, there you go, Shao Chiji. Yes, I know all about about him. But um, I'm big. On, I'm back on the coronavirus dog beat. So um, first, I told you that there were dogs that could detect coronavirus and were being right. piloted at different airports. Um, now there is a new type of coronavirus that is believed to have originated in dogs and was detected among patients who were hospitalized with pneumonia. Um, it might be the eighth unique coronavirus case that is known to cause disease 
in humans if it is confirmed as a pathogen. The other study um, was published this past week, and it uh, originated from cases, roughly 300 cases in East Malaysia. Um, and I think out of uh, eight of the samples, there were positive tests, for positive results that were traced to canine coronavirus. Mm. So, you know, I, I guess we, no one needs to panic. That's, that's for sure. Um, but I think that if you have a furry friend, because <laughs> it, was, it was a little inconclusive or the research did not suggest last year that dogs had, uh, were at risk of contracting COVID, uh, it does seem to be that there is a such thing as a canine coronavirus. So keep your pups safe. I have a feeling we're going to see a book about dogs and coronavirus here before this is finished here. Written by <laughs> so me. That's what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I can I can feel it coming. Okay, so my favorite story of the week, I cannot believe this, but I read this week that next week, uh, next month rather, month of June, uh, the United States Senate is going to hold a big hearing where they're going to receive a report on UFOs. Scott, you probably know all about this, but I uh, looked into it a little bit. This has been going on since the Def Defense Department starting investigating sightings of UFOs by Navy pilots back in 2007. And then, that was under President George W. Bush, uh, as part of Donald Trump's coronavirus rele relief bill that he signed last August, <laughs> there was some language in there that required the Defense Department to prepare this report on UFO sightings and present it to the United States Senate this June. Uh, and the Dep Director of National Intelligence and the uh, Secretary of Defense have been working on this ever since. The hearing is all set, uh, and reportedly it will include three videos of UFs, UFO sightings by Navy pilots. Uh, I never thought when I was reading so much science fiction as a kid that UFOs would end up being in front of the United States Senate and being taken seriously. But I don't know what this tells us. Um, the only thing I think we can be certain of is that um, we'll see how this plays out uh, with the politics of the moment. And I think we can be certain that if uh, Nancy Pelosi comes out for UFOs, that Kevin McCarthy will be against them. Right. <laughs> Uh, that's kind of all we know. <laughs> yeah. Hey, with that, thank you so much, our panelists, Scott Wong from The Hill. Thank you, Scott. Melanie Mason, LA Times. Good to have you back with us. And Sabrina Siddiqui, as always, from The Wall Street Journal. Thanks so much, guys. And thank you all for listening. Again, our next podcast, uh, an exclusive interview with David Farenthold, Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for The Washington Post, uh, who has been following uh, Donald Trump from the beginning and is going to tell us all about uh, the combination of legal woes facing the former president. Uh, and with that, we say again, thank you for listening. Take care of yourself. Stay safe and join us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. <laughs>